2: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got a bit of an episode with a difference for you today. We're dropping in someone else's podcast, but it's because A, it's really good, and B, is because I'm on it, so it all makes sense. Go with it, folks. It's a show that I've been a fan of for a long time called We Didn't Start the Fire. It's a history podcast inspired by the lyrics. It's a really good idea. This really annoys me. It's inspired by the lyrics of the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire. And if you remember, it starts like Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray. It's a gallop through the history of his life. And this podcast are going through it line by line with people explaining what every single reference is. It's such a good idea. The one I'm about to play is very special because I talked to the great Katie Putrick and Tom Fordyce about the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, which was in 1954 in Vietnam. As you'll know, because you'll love history, it was the nemesis of French Empire in Asia, it was a catastrophic defeat for the French and ended up with them leaving Southeast Asia. It also led to the downfall of the French government. I mean, it's big, big repercussions. And if any place on earth really symbolizes the end of this era of European Empire, it's probably Dien Bien Phu high in the hills of what is now northern Vietnam. It was really fun to record this. I've always been fascinated by this story. I've been to Vietnam several times. I think it's a fascinating battlefield, a fascinating story. I thought you might like to hear it too. And of course, go and check out their other episodes if you want. Let's do them a favor. They got everything from Einstein, North Korea, Nixon, Catcher in the Rye. Obviously, just search We Didn't Start the Fire in your podcast app and do all that following and subscribing and stuff. Anyway, here is We Didn't Start the Fire with Katie Puckrick, Tom Fordyce and me.
1: This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
0: Joseph Stalin, Melanchthon, NASA, Emperor Kofia, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist bloc, Roy Cohn, Juan Peron, Toscanini, Decron, Dien Bien Phu Falls. Easy
1: for you to say, Katie.
0: Oh, it wasn't that easy.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 39 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Shall we start some fires, Katie? Oh,
0: I can't wait. Now, today's fire involves a term that I can barely say. Dien Bien Fu Falls is the lyric, and Dien Bien Fu is a place, Tom. Did you know that?
1: Katie, when I first saw the lyric Dien Bien Fu Falls, I thought it might be a tourist attraction, some lovely waterfalls somewhere in the far east. And I was very wrong.
0: Very wrong. Um, now there is somebody who's going to put us on the path of correctness, and I'm really looking forward to this. He is Dan Snow, historian and host of the beloved history hit podcast, History Hit. Uh, Dan, hi.
2: Hey, and by the way, can I just stop you there? No. It is a great tourist attraction. What, do you, what the hell do you guys do on vacation? <laughs> Waterfalls. <laughs> uh, what? The first thing I did when I went to Vietnam was go to Dien Bien Phu. Did you go to the Coochie tunnels? Of course I did. Yeah. Could you get in them? No, I got stuck.
0: Dan, I don't know if you know this, but your aunt, the historian Margaret McMillan has already been forging a trail here on We didn't start the fire.
2: Get out of here. She Yeah, been on. yeah. yeah
0: she's been she was our expert for the H-Bomb show and oh. the England's got a new queen. That's so cool. Yeah, so you have uh, some big stilettos to fill here. Uh Dien Bien Phu refers to the pivotal battle of the first Indochina War. And the Viet Minh's victory over the colonial French, who had their hindquarters kicked six ways to Sunday. But to get there, we got to rewind. <laughs> what were the origins of the conflict, Dan? In, in
2: 1914, 85% of the world's population was governed by Europeans. European empires covered nearly every part of the globe. There's very, very few bits of the globe. China, for example, bits of China, which, which didn't have, what well, were not incorporated into European empires. After Second World War, this process completely unravels. You get decolonization. And in previous bouts of decolonization, like when the Roman Empire falls, you know about it, right? There's guys crossing the Rhine. They're smashing the place up. When the Abbasid Empire falls in Baghdad, the Mongols turn up, wrap the fight, the last caliph in a rug trample him to death burn the library destroy the whole place you know about it the european empires mainly go out with a kind of weird whimper the british just leave india pakistan sri lanka that kind of area, bum they, they 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 realize it's just no point going on anymore apart from the french apart from the french the french put up one hell of a fight and as a result at the NBNC, you get the only example in the 20th century of these european empires retreating at the end of a bayonet they are beaten out of vietnam they don't go of their own accord. They don't reluctantly leave like the Brits do in various places like Nigeria. They are thrashed by a an indigenous army. It's the only time a modern European army is thrashed like this uh, in this period. So it's so it's come to sort of symbolize this, this moment of decolonization. Um and the French are as you say on the receiving end. So that's the kind of background. The background is that after France fell in 1940, in one of the most catastrophic military campaigns of all time in a, in a matter of a couple of weeks. Those Germans all n- nibbling on their speed pills, marched across France, one into the other, very, very quickly indeed, set all the world records. Anyway, so Southeast Asia was all French Empire, Lao and what we now, Lao, Cambodia, Vietnam, stuff. The Japanese moved in there after the French fell to the Germans, The Japanese kind of moved in to deal with their, uh, deal with that part of the world. And then in 1945, because the French wanted to kind of reassert their manuals and the so their vitality, go, look, we're back, we're back in the game. We're still a great power. They decided they were going to go all in, getting back their empire in Southeast Asia. And it went badly. It turned into this like grueling, miserable, attritional guerrilla war, which we come to recognize so much now in the 20th century, and 21st. And the French That we know what we'll do. We'll bring things to a head. We're going to fight a big old battle. We're going to win. This is it. This is the end of our problems.
0: And just uh, looking a little bit before Dien Ben Phu, at uh, the warring factions. I think it's very interesting that you had a a, a very um, dissolute and random cast of characters who were fighting on behalf of uh, the Vietnamese and also uh, the French. So you had like leftover Japanese soldiers. Crazy, yeah. Yeah, people, and people. then you had some Axis powers like former SS officers coming in on behalf so of the French Foreign Legion. A lot of
2: people in 1945 who didn't really want to go and have their day in court okay they didn't didn't, they'd done some things they'd been on the losing side and they'd done some things they'd done something they should not have done and so if you're a japanese uh soldier officer and you've been committing war crimes anywhere across japan's giant asian empire you find a way to slip out change uniform and go and support whoever's in town by the same token lots of german (laughs) amazingly ss uh, obviously some slopeway to Argentina, but many joined the French Foreign Legion, particularly of course because a big chunk of what the what the Germans thought of a Germany Alsace Lorraine has now been incorporated back into France. These are actually French citizens now who've been fighting for the Third Reich, often in SS units. So they were they were part of this the Motley crew a little bit like Iraq in our lifetime sometimes there's, there's a situation and mercenaries are required volunteers are required and they kind of suck in all the baddest people on the planet like a lot of dodgy South African mercenaries turn up in Iraq and Basra yeah. in Baghdad in, in the early 21st century um, and obviously we know about the other side all the kind of Mujahideen folks go so yeah it's a little bit it is a bit like that
0: so it's like getting the band back together but it's like a, like a, a tour like a, like a you know, super group if it's you like will it's like a
2: supergroup of just evil hateful people, people. Uh, hateful <laughs> yeah. people yeah, who yeah, who just gravitate towards where there are guns, money, and license to you know, commit atrocities and things.
1: <laughs> and by the time of this battle, Dan, in nineteen fifty four, um, what is the state of play? Are France losing heavily? Is this one final hurrah, or do they feel like they're on top?
2: So you got Ho Chi Minh, who is this legendary father of the Vietnamese people. He is. He, he travelled. He was Vietnamese. He travelled to France. He applied to work in the French colonial administration. He's one of these in many. The characters you get in this time not not unlike some of the Indian um, leaders of independence not unlike Ansang Sushi's father they're sort of they, they kind of initially think well fine if we're one great happy empire multinational empire let me get involved and then they experience racism and pushback at the in the colonial centre and he realizes that the French Empire is actually just it's just of French white supremacy and he gets it so while he's in France he's washing dishes he's doing jobs he travels on ships goes to America we think and Britain he um lived in Ealing for a while he becomes an anti imperialist and he joins the Socialist Party and eventually is attracted to communist but part most because it was an engine of decolonization he just didn't want he just didn't really want the french running vietnam anymore and he had, and the tragedy of this whole thing he admired George Washington. He admired Western kind of liberal uh, republicanism. And we now think we can be clever after you know, that people that knew him said, look, he'd have been cool with, um, if the French leave Vietnam, he'd have been pretty happy to be sort of be on a kind of liberal capitalist basis. But he found the only place he'd get a hearing, he wrote these letters to Truman, he wrote letters to people, they all ignored him. The only place he'd get a hearing is the, is the communist bloc. And they're like, yeah, we hate the Western... Uh, sort of capitalist and So he
0: reached out to President Truman reached, in, the, yeah. in the US. Yeah,
2: he reached out and he and he went He went to the Treaty of Versailles. He was willing to engage in Treaty of Versailles. And of course, everyone ignored him because of basically this kind of inherent racism at the world at that time. And the idea that these people were incapable of governing themselves. And so he eventually goes to a place where they, he could get guns, he'd get money, he'd get support. And that was communism. So, so And then of course, once you, as we see President Nasser in Asia all through the Cold War, once you kind of, Oh, yeah, I'll take that call. The Americans like whack you on the list, so then suddenly you're like a terrorist. Suddenly you're like, oh, you're like, okay. So, so you're you're forced constantly to ch- take sides, like the X Men films, and the so he ends up with his brilliant commander Jap uh, at fighting an insurgency. Classic insurgency. They've got people. They've got supplies, they travel light, they've got new te- warf- technology, means you carry things like assault rifles that can do a huge amount of damage and don't require massive uh, logistical chains to support them. It's the kind of thing we see around the world in the 20th century. We see it famously in Vietnam a decade later, but we see it right here in the 50s. It's just a total pain in the ass for the French. They're, they're, not, they're not losing, but they're not winning. And in, in an insurgency, if you're not winning, you are losing. Unless you're restoring order, you're, just, it's just, you're bleeding money. You've got people at home going, let's have a national health service, effectively. And you're just going, no, what I think is really important is was restoring French rule in the jungles of northern Indochina, right? So it's unpopular in France, ironically. And so the French, government, French authorities in Vietnam say what lots of people have always said. It's what what you do when you get a bit desperate. It's what Hitler did at the beginning of the Second World War. You seek a decisive confrontation Mm. because you think, I'm not going to win the long haul. We're getting ground down here. What we want is to bring this all to a climax in a dramatic and decisive confrontation that will allow me to overturn the kind of odds and win. It's very, attractive. you can see it's very attractive. I mean, we all think, yeah, that's much more fun than just going, let's build a whole network of roads and rural police stations and slowly try and educate people and bring food security to the outlying areas and convince them that French colonial rule is better. Not super exciting. We're going to stick 6,000 bad men into this valley in North Vietnam, cut off Viet Minh, the rebel supply lines, take the fight into their hearts. Lands and then bring them in, set ourselves up almost as, a, as vulnerable in this kind of rural valley. They'll think, right, let's come in for the kill. And we want them to do that because then we will annihilate them.
0: So they had their strategy all mapped out, but what were their Misconceptions.
2: Well, the misconception was that every time you seek decisive battles, the other side might just say yes. Might be their decisive battle. It might, as be well. that. It, might, it might be decisive battle, but not the way you intended. So the plan was really good up until the point at which the, the French had underestimated the Vietnamese war fighting capability. So they said, "We'll, we'll go. We'll, we'll occupy this valley. There's high peaks around it. It's in the middle of jungle. It's, in the, it's near their supply. It's, it's, it's sort of not the obvious place for us to want to fight a, a modern battle, which requires modern war, folks. People talk all the time." about sort of heroism and valor in the battlefield and leadership and speeches. It's irrelevant, really. It's irrelevant. It's not relevant. It's not them. It's not as important as something else, which is logistics. You need bombs, and you need bullets, and you need shells, and you need food, and you need cans, you need oil, petrol, you need aircraft parts. And so it's a bit weird for the French to disappear off to the most remote part of, of Vietnam, set up this weird base that is vulnerable to fire from the hills around it and think that they're going to fight this giant battle from there. But, but they
0: had an airfield, though. And
2: an airfield, though. So they were like, the Vietnamese, this is so clever. They'll think, huh, they, they, they will be dangling a little ripe, juicy target the Vietnamese will not be able to say no to. And they will do what vi- guerrillas never do which is stop you know t- coming in ones and twos at night and stabbing this bloke and blowing up that post office. We want to get them all in the same place and then we can smash them with our crazy Western armor and our firepower and our bombs and our machine guns. That's what we want. We need the guerrillas to come out of their hiding places and that we to offer ourselves up as a target. We've built a runway and all night and every day our planes will take off from this airfield and napalm them and blow them to pieces, right? And we will win. We will win this war, this unwinnable war We'll win and we'll show those politicians in Paris that we are talking about um, and all those liberals and intelligentsia people who are dissing us and we will show that France can be great again. Now, as
1: you describe it like that, Dan, I can imagine a table, uh, a nice, probably a circular table. There are French generals all the way around the outside and I can imagine them standing up and cheering because it sounds like an amazing plan. But once they actually get to Dien Bien Phu... I imagine they changed their minds because when I first read about this, Katie, in my head, it's a huge garrison already. It's a spectacular fortress. It's a vast town. Maybe it's even a city. Rather than this very weird setup, Dan, where you've got five or six or seven disparate little bases that all look like they can be picked off one at a time.
2: There you go. Military. You've got, here we go. Military strategist over. you spotted <laughs> the problem immediately. Yeah, this is not a fortress at Verdun. This is not the Maginot Line. This is not a kind of gigantic... Fortifications that you expect, you know, Hitler to try and build to stop the Soviet army in 1943, 44. This is just, it's a weird plan. Look, fundamentally, they're racist. They used to f- refer to the Vietnamese in raci- racially derogatory ways. They assumed that they were incapable of fighting modern war, positional warfare and the skills. So what they do is they, they build a, an airstrip and they surround it with little dots each one apparently named after the uh, mistresses of this kind of really charismatic and brilliant uh, aristocratic uh, general who was in charge of the Castry. So, but, French. so French. So French. So French. Uh, and I say brilliant. And of course, actually turns out not to be brilliant at all. But he thought, this is great. We'll have all these little fire bases, They're mutually supporting, i.e. their guns can sort of cover each other. Uh, and so a key thing, as you point out, is airfield in the middle, air power is the answer to Western strategists' fever dreams. Because the Viet Minh don't have air power. They have jet aircraft capable of dropping, you know, precision munitions, uh, and and it
1: sort of um, it doesn't really work. Mm. You say it doesn't really work. There is one image, Katie, and that's when they decide to drop a bulldozer out of an aeroplane with
0: a with a parachute attached to sure, it. With a right? parachute attached, yeah, nice. unfortunately,
1: misses Festive. the landing zone and ends up in a paddy field.
0: Yeah, in a rice paddy, um, and whoops, well, you can't use that anymore. It's just waterlogged. Too bad. Um, They ended up having to parachute not only bulldozers, but, you know, arm supplies, men, because what happened to that airfield?
2: This is a critical moment. They got everything wrong in that the Viet Minh, the Vietnamese rebels, were able to assemble a vast stockpile of very modern weapons, but using the most primitive form, which is humans carrying it all. And of course, not to not to underestimate the probably the most important decisive weapon of the battle, which was a bicycle. Yeah. So through the jungle canopy, you can you can create these trails uh, from their supply bases and you can move an astonishing amount of men and material. And there's young children carrying there's women as working as porters, and you can filter through the forest. When there is a successful airstrike, if and when they do happen, you simply move out, and there's no—you you haven't built a particularly road, you haven't built big concrete bridges, steel reinforced. It's brutal, and no European would think of doing it because, frankly, we've lost that kind of that that agrarian toughness that you would expect in terms of portage. You know that that we we rely on vehicles, Europeans. Yeah, the we're, French, we're soft. We've gone very soft, right? Yeah. The French rely on um, motor vehicles transport, so they look at their enemy and think they'll never be able to tow. Ten-ton guns up through this jungle to mountainous positions to then rain down fire on this base. It's impossible. How are you going to do it? Well, they do it because they disassemble them, they carry them, and they, they dig, lug they them, dig, they drag them, dig ditches, don't they? They, they dig they ditches. To- they hide them. Yeah. Uh, they. That's a very good point. They, they, so you can't see it all happening under the jungle canopy. It's
0: sort of like under street level, so to speak.
2: They dig enormous tunnels and through the hillsides. They've got a lot of support, we should say. So the Americans have started giving the French a lot of money and support here. It's the classic Cold War proxy war thing going on. The puppet masters have got China and USSR pouring money and supplies towards the Viet Minh. The Viet Minh got lots of people, 50,000 people or so, but they get. Heavy guns from the Chinese, often captured in the Korean War, by the way, just it's just finishing, finished slightly earlier. Well,
0: you know, they're recycling, why not? They're it's very recycling. very
2: green. They're using shells. It must have been dispiriting to get, you know, Western manufactured shells raining down on the French. Uh, and so you just can that is the logist the logistics is what is is the beginning, middle, and end of this story. You open fire on these French bases, you shock the French. You cannot they cannot believe they are receiving this. Um, this volume and intensity of fire. But then you've got to send, unfortunately in war, you do have to send in the lads to fight at close quarters, get across that barbed wire. And there is unimaginably brutal hand-to-hand fighting. And one by one, these outlying bases are picked off. You listen to me talking about Dien Bien Phu. More coming up.
1: Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: And the story, Dan, of how these outline bases are picked off seems to follow a similar pattern where there is a certain haplessness in leadership on the ground and an inability to work out what is happening around them, then a large degree of heroism from the people defending that particular base, and then ultimately a capitulation.
2: Yeah, so that's that's fair. Um, I think, it, although we we should say the Viet Minh performed brilliantly there as well. So we shouldn't blame again. It's tempting to be as a European sort of blame everything on Europeans. I, mean, I think, not sure the French could do anything differently really. But but the plan was flawed. And the people on the ground then had to live with that and and go through the in, in almost inevitable um, tragedy that uh, unfolded. So yeah, so you bring down massive fires. You said, Katie, there's tunnels being built. So it's it's very like the First World War. You you inch forward trenches. You you provide. You've got unlimited manpower and woman power. So you're digging these unbelievably long trenches. The airstrip is put out of action by the artillery fire that the, the Vietnamese have managed to achieve. And from that moment, they're just done. It's done, done, done. It's only a matter of time. But So the, the artillery fire is smashing the airfield. It's smashing these outlying bases, bringing down unbelievable torrents of fire that no French army was ever expecting from these Asian peasant volunteer guerrilla forces. Yeah, women and children on puja bicycles. Right, so what are they doing firing 105 millimeter shells in extraordinary quantities? No, it's not cool. It's not meant to happen, right? <laughs> so then, also, because they've got limited manpower, having... A having having ground out. You haven't let them sleep. You haven't defended these bases. Sleep. You, you you've pounded them. You haven't let them uh, you repair their defenses. You then send infantry in waves, outnumbering them ten to one. Mm. So waves of human. Like first of all, we again. First of all, we always say, oh, Battle of Somme, terrible. You know, incompetent generals. Well, that's exactly what General Jap does in this uh, in this conflict. He softens up the French, and then he just he sends these overwhelming waves of human uh, attack, a human sort of wave attacks at these little bases. He each one that falls, you then get a foothold, and you then make the other base untenable because they're all mutually reinforcing. The trouble is, they're all mutually—it's pretty destructive when one part falls, it's like a cancer, it will start to spread through the whole system.
0: And wasn't there a, a moment where the U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles offers the French two atomic bombs? Well, this is the
2: big, uh, this is the big debate. There's a, there's a moment, but you're, you're right—that it gets things get so desperate. I mean, one of the worst moments. Very early on, it's just after the first two forts fall within a day. Uh, the artillery commander at the base, like Mr. Artillery, who's meant to be bringing down, you know, fire on the Vietnamese and winning this decisive battle. He takes a hand grenade into his tent and blows himself up, which is bad for morale.
0: No, the, there's bad not a lot of... Well. Bad him as well. it's bad for him. <laughs> not but, a lot of confidence.
2: Yeah, it's like, how's the leadership? doing? Well, he's... Okay, so then, so then the French panic and go to the Americans and say, listen, these guys are communists. You know, communists, right? We don't like these guys. Yeah,
0: remember, you don't like them either.
2: Yeah, It's like, you know. That's the um, trigger word. Yeah, exactly. It's a good bit of branding. But they were communists by that stage, and they were being helped by the Chinese, of course. So the Americans, Nixon, predictably, and uh, Dulles, the Secretary of State, was quite hawkish. And the the French say, this might be a lost in translation moment, the French say that Dulles floated the idea of atomic weapons being, so by this stage, tactical, so-called tactical nuclear weapons, because the insanity of mankind knows no bounds. And after dropping the nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what the US military thought was, these are great, but they're a bit clumsy. Mm. You know what? They wipe out and air. What we need is stuff that we can actually use on the battlefield. They made atomic things that are remarkably small than what we might think. They made like atomic handheld weapons. So oh, I'm like what? portable, like yeah, lo- locale. It it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you could just sort of like you know, almost throw a hand grenade, almost, but it'll have an atomic yield. Like it was just a, it was seen as a brilliant bit of new technology that would just obviously like expand the killing capability of individuals on the battlefield. So there were so-called tactical weapons where you would be able to just nuke quite a small area, but you would absolutely be able to destroy it. And then, and then the the French would be able to take that terrain straight after. So they did those nuclear tests you may have seen out in the people watching them in Vegas with the yeah. sort of funny glasses on. And, and they would have, what they do is they drop an atomic weapon and then people would get out their trenches straight away and, and, and march over that terrain and take it, quote-unquote. And, of course, they suffered terrible health complications and disasters uh, at, both at the time and ever since. But, well, whatever Dulles suggested, the Americans decided not to do it because it would be potentially catastrophic. But um, they
0: did throw some money. The U.S. Uh, paid for about 80% of the supplies, didn't they, for the French? Very much so.
2: Very much so, yeah. I mean, the Americans, yeah. when you're kind of ha- globally hegemonic power like the Brits were in 19th century or the Americans were in the 20th century, is a great expression. The Brits, uh, people hate the Brits in 19th century because they basically throw money at problems without having to get their own hands dirty. So, yeah. this famously one European said, "The British are willing to fight to the death of the last Austrian." 'Cause yeah, you know, basically the well, <laughs> Austrians had a limited manpower, just loads of them, right? And obviously the Austro Hungarian Empire really big and that's it. And the Brits just keep sending money, going, please raise more armies, fight Napoleon. We can't do it ourselves, but here's some cash. And so yeah, anyway, so in a similar way, the Americans found themselves fighting through these proxies and obviously famously, you know, whether it's in Africa, whether it's supporting the French in, in um Indochina. And then when that falls through, the Americans then decide they're gonna they're gonna get involved themselves. But yeah. At
1: what point does America realise that it might have backed the wrong horse here?
2: Well, it's very clear. When these bases just inexorably fall, the airstrip gets put out of action. So the French, even if they had a plan, they can no longer use their plan to, to use tactical air power, fighter bombers, to destroy the troops on the ground, the Minh on the ground, partly because they can't see them, uh, partly because the airstrip doesn't work anymore. It's, it's a horror show. So uh, slowly, it's inexorable. They just capture one after the other. They just grind closer and closer. And there's this amazing kind of radio communications mm. between them and their the, their HQ in Hanoi. And so it becomes, yeah, it's, they just, it's a slow motion. It's a relatively slow motion catastrophe. It plays out over about a month.
0: And what is the radio
2: communication? <laughs> There was a conversation between Castry and his French superior in in Hanoi. And that's amazing because at that stage, he tells him ne- do not surrender. On any account, do not surrender. So
0: they're like, please, can we just yeah. flash that white flag? Because, yeah. like, uh, we've run out of tricks. And
1: the bloke who's sitting in probably a nice colonial mansion in Hanoi yeah. with probably a glass of claret. He's had a nice lunch. He's got his feet up on the desk. Uh,
0: a
2: cigar.
1: Yeah, lads, don't surrender under any circumstances. See you later.
2: Yeah, all the best. And what's amazing about that is people... The bullshit that people come up with when they're in senior positions of military and political power is, like, that's exactly what Hitler said at Stalingrad. These people think, you know, a surrendering will be worse than everyone being killed and taken. Like, it's just nonsense. Like, how do they come up with this mad stuff? Like, so, so he is told, for purely political purposes, fight the last man, the last bullet, and then we'll try and turn it into a national myth, right? Which is what Hitler does at Stalingrad. It's like... It's not going to be a national myth, brother. That's like plan D, and it's a crap plan. <laughs> so they pay for this with their lives. I've always found it really chilling. He's, there's a radio transmission from somebody going, the enemy troops are outside my headquarters. Every position has been overrun. Uh, it's the last words of the enemy has overrun us. We are blowing up everything. Vive la France. It's just so grim. Uh, and 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 I, again, just to come back like the fighting there, was as bad as anything that you guys will, have, will, will imagine the First World War being like. Or oh, it's also during a monsoon, it's a tropical monsoon. So the mud, the, 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 the intensity is, and the hand-to-hand nature of it. Uh, and, and of course, the kind of hatred, I think, given an, given an extra layer of racial antipathy going on there as well.
0: And what an utter humiliation for the French. How did they deal with that?
2: Not well. They agreed that v- the party was over in Vietnam, so by July, the French Empire in South Asia is over. The government has collapsed. It's the end of a kind of a vision of the world in which European empires dominated. Mm-hmm. It actually fomented. The news of it got back to Algeria, was literally considered a piece of France at that point, Algeria. And the, the, the first riots, first uprisings against French rule occurred within weeks of news arriving to NBN food, Algeria would see the French broaden, another appalling insurgency, criminality and atrocities committed and and led to a, a military push against the french government it led to the fall of the fourth republic and the, and the return of charles de gaulle as a sort of national figure of salvation so i mean the answer is few battles have had bigger political ramifications i think than this one so i think the french came in about a thousand dead a thousand lost which effectively uh dead, and then four thousand people wounded to greater and lesser extent, and the Vietnamese we just don't know, but over twenty thousand so astonishing astonishing sacrifice those numbers aren't huge compared to some of the numbers, for example, the battles of um first war, of course, but it's a good example that military well, military and politics is not about scale sometimes it's about this is one of the most decisive battles of the twentieth century, even though it was I mean, quite small, but there was nothing small about it for the people involved.
0: So, Tom, the Vietnamese say that it took a 1,000 years to be rid of the Chinese, 70 years to be rid of the French, and 15 years to be rid of the USA. So, Dan, this failure at Dien Bien Phu leads the U.S. into 10 years of the Vietnam War, or the American War, as the Vietnamese (laughs) knew it as.
2: And the open view was uh, uppermost. I mean, they they were obsessed with the open view. In fact, President Johnson there was a sort of strangely similar situation at a fire base called KSAN, uh, where also Americans had an airfield and they, they tried to tempt the Vietnamese to attack it. And the Vietnamese did. And in fact, there, the Americans did um, unleash unimaginable casualties on the Vietnamese attackers. So, But but Johnson freaked out about Khe San, and he built a model of it in the White House basement and went down there every day. And he used to, he used to say, people over here and, so, heard, and talking to himself, I don't want no damn bien Phu.'" Yeah, he was. a mm-hmm. like, text like, so much. I won't But he, he talked about Dien and Fu a lot, and it, it is a spectre that haunts anybody fighting complex insurgencies in in the so called you know the third world uh, for the for decades to come.
1: Why does America then not look at what happened to the French and think? hang on, Yeah, this looks like an awful place to fight against people who are doing things that are almost impossible to counteract.
2: Asymmetrical Do you warfare. know what? We
1: might just have a little bit of chats here. This might be George or not War War.
2: Because unfortunately, we are not very good. We, we, we back ourselves, don't we? And we probably think, well, so-and-so's had a go before, but they're crap compared to us. <laughs> right. And we will... Do everything correct. So, we, and you see that in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, why did the Americans invade Afghanistan in 2001? A- after the Soviets had such a tough time. Literally 15 years before. Yeah. Uh, but the answer was, well, oh, because we got you know, smart weapons and all the new stuff and yeah. GPS and cool stuff and we'll be fine. So, uh, there is a kind of myopia there. But there is also a bigger, probably a bigger point, which is they, they knew it was... An uh, auspicious place to go and fight, but they felt it was absolutely essential because this idea of a domino theory of these, of these states of Southeast Asia, South Asia falling one by one to communism. Uh, the Chinese, re- the Chinese civil war and the victory of the communists in China is regarded as the greatest American foreign policy mistake. Of all time, virtually, even though China specialists say there's was not much America done about it, they, lots of people in America still believe it was their fault that they lost quote unquote lost China, and so having lost China. You develop a you know, communist superpower in in East Asia. You then quote unquote lose to lose Vietnam. Um, the Brits were fighting brutal communist insurgency in Malaysia at the same time. There was this idea that you may end up with a situation where you know, Australia would be threatened, you know, India might get so it was just you, communism had to be stopped where it was, and unfortunately, where it was was in the jungles of Vietnam.
1: And I, th- I think it's probably easy for us to look back with hindsight and question domino theory because it just seems to be the source of so many problems geopolitically for 20, 30, 40 years. But at the time, Dan, was there something in it? Was there a legitimate concern? I
2: I, I always feel a bit embarrassed, but I mean, I'm not, it's not my period of debt, like, but I do think there was, yeah, there was an element, I guess, of supporting, as it turned out, horrific regimes like the Southern Vietnamese and the Southern South Koreans um, and the Malaysians, as it turned out. But it, the idea was eventually you might persuade them to come around to kind of li- become liberal democracies and, and, and sort of um, bring them into a kind of mature global trading system and stuff. So uh, and, and to see them all go one after the other to communists without putting up any kind of resistance, I think, would have, did make sense at the time. Uh, we who knows what the counterfactual is, but, uh, but it was just, you know, it was brutal. Vietnam was a, a monumental catastrophe. For America, and it was, but it was born out of this determination that the, communi- the communists couldn't, they were hoping the French would manage it didn't work. So they thought we're, gonna ha- we're just going to have to step in here. Katie, that's what,
1: I think it's that that feels like the double tragedy of the MBN Fu. Not only what happened at that battle, but what we know happened afterwards as a result to all those Americans, to those young lads.
0: It's really frustrating because you just see people, it's just hubris driving uh, the commanders, the leaders of America just just to throw the cannon fodder kids right into the line of fire. But um, just to be... Completely cheeky. uh, The Vietnamese did get some good French snacks out of the whole situation because baguettes. They still love their baguettes. They still love their baguettes. Um, I mean that that just seems odd to me. I mean, I'm being flippant, but um, you know, culturally, they picked up a few expressions. They picked up uh, some food, some snacks. Uh, It's interesting how maybe on the soft power side of things, they could have the French could have been a little more convincing and, and maybe kept the Vietnamese on side.
2: Well, what's so interesting about soft power, of course, is the first, um, Vietnam is now like a, a, a bastion of American capitalism in Asia. I mean, the whole thing's so bonkers. That's where so like, you get your Nike trainers from. Yeah, of course. And it's like McDonald's. So this is, in fact, if anything, Vietnam is now being sort of Way, like recruited by the Americans as a bit of a counterweight to you know the to, to China's dominance in the in the region. So in a, yeah, often throughout history, the extension of, the extension of formal intervention, military control, political control is so counterproductive. You know you and 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 famously the Brits, for example, in South America had an option after Spain had all been kicked out. The Brits kind of thought, should we we take those former colonies over like Argentina and and Chile and and there was quite a discussion within Britain about that. And they went, no, you're crazy. Just, you know, flog them our stuff. Send our experts. And what do you get? You get railways built by the British. You get football being exported and started in Buenos Aires and elsewhere. And actually, South, South America gets kind of incorporated in so-called informal empire in the 19th century, which which, which is kind of crazy. And you think about what the Americans spent in, in blood and treasure in Vietnam. Um, but it's just, yeah, as you say, hubris.
1: And to bring it back to the start, Dan... You can actually go to the remnants of Dien Bien Phu now and it is not quite a holiday attraction, but you can go and walk around it and you can, if you are Vietnamese, you can celebrate your great victory.
2: And if you're um, anyone else, you just sort of look on you mighty in despair, right? I mean, it's just, um, it's, a, it's a it's a place of where, you, the, it's, if any place on earth symbolises the end of the era of European empire, it's Dien Bien Phu. It's a graveyard of... Of empire. So, and so I think, unlike lots of things in this song and other parts of 20th century history that we revere, I think they, people will still be talking about this place for centuries to come.
1: Billy did a good thing here, Katie. Billy got it on the nose. Nailed it. Cheers, Dan. Cheers, man. Cheers. Thank you very much.
2: I feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone
0: and finished.
2: There we go, folks, focus on Food. Thank you very much for listening. What a place, what a story. Remember, if you want more of these episodes, go and look up the rest of the series now. They've got lots of great episodes. Nixon, Eisenhower, Stalin, Marlon Brando, Marion Monroe, Billy Joel did a lot of living. Interesting times. And there's a new episode out every Monday, so go and search. We didn't start the fire or follow. Subscribe now. Meanwhile, Dan Snow's history here. We'll be back tomorrow.